Uh, If you would, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14. That is Mark 11, 11 through 14. And obviously we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. And today we'll be considering the account of our Lord Jesus Christ cursing a fig tree. Uh, The text before us this morning is one that, for most of us, uh, it appears to be quite strange. Um, A quick summary here. In our text, the Lord Jesus is hungry. He approaches a fig tree looking for fruit, finds only leaves on it, no fruit, and then pronounces a curse on the tree that kills it. This is one of those texts that I said this last, last week about myself with the triumphal entry. This is one of those texts that I think most Christians, uh, you read it and you scratch your head and you say, that was weird. And then you move on and you keep reading in, in the Bible until you find something that you do understand, right? Like you're probably not going to stop at the fig tree text and say, and that's what I'm taking for the day, right? Because you're, you're going to say, that's weird. I don't understand what's going on, right? Um, again, at first glance, it, it's just kind of a strange passage, Jesus curses a fig tree, and it seems out of character um, to many people. It seems like a not very Jesus-y thing to do, Um, and it's just plain confusing to other people. What is going on here? Um, But there's more to this text than first meets the eye. Uh, While this event really, truly, historically happened, nevertheless, it was a symbolic event. You could say that the cursing of the fig tree was a living parable of sorts, Uh, paralleled to uh, a parable in in Luke chapter 13 that I'm going to read later. But it's primarily, this cursing of the fig tree is primarily about Israel. It's about the Jews of Jesus' day and about how they were under a curse from God, how that they would be cursed by God. And they were cursed for having the privileges of being the old covenant people of God, but not having true faith that bears fruit. They were cursed for having the external things of religion, but not the substance of religion in their hearts. This passage is about how Israel did not bear fruit, and so God, the great vine dresser, said, cut the nation down and throw it in the fire. It's worthless to me. The the text before us is about the necessity of bearing fruit. And while primarily Israel is in mind in the immediate context and in the context of Mark's gospel, there is still a message for each one of us. This text is a warning shot to everyone who hears it. It's a warning that declares that our Lord Jesus Christ demands fruit from God's people. He demands it. It's a warning to each of us that we must bear fruit with our profession of faith if our profession of faith is indeed true. And it's a warning that without such fruit, only a curse remains for us to receive. I'm telling you on the front end, and again, I believe this is why Pastor Stephen chose Psalm 90 to begin the service with. This text and its application are heavy, if you haven't caught that already from the introduction. It's heavy. It's not a cheerful text. This is a hard passage with hard application. But I want to encourage you here. It's been written for our good, hasn't it? It's been written for our good. Everything God inspired to be recorded in Scripture is for our instruction and edification. It's for us to be built up in the faith. So while this sermon will be heavy, I'm not going to lie, nevertheless, it's good for us to consider hard truths and inspect our lives. God loves us, and so he warns us in his word, and he teaches us how to distinguish between true faith and false faith. 
as Dave Allison tells his Sunday school class all the time, true love warns. And God is love. So then God will warn us and tell us hard truths that we need to hear. And in light of that, may God help each of us to receive his word today. So now with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 14. And he, Jesus, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us this morning. Uh, we are ignorant and we are easily fooled by both the world and our own flesh. And so we humbly ask you to instruct us by your word today. Please teach us and help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest what you have spoken in your word. Help us to see and seeing, repent and believe. Please use the preaching of your word this morning to cause us to bear more and more fruit. Have mercy upon us and glorify yourself today in us. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Our text begins in verse 11. Right? I know I, I used uh, verse 11 in last week's sermon, but, but nevertheless, it needs to be seen in, in this context. Uh, the triumphal entry is over. Right? Jesus has officially entered the city of Jerusalem. As I said last week, the, the king, the Lord Jesus, the king, now goes to his palace. Right? He is God in the flesh, so he goes where? He goes to the temple. The king goes to his temple. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He goes into the temple. But what does he go there to do? He goes in there to inspect it. He goes into his temple, his house, right? He is God after all. He goes to his house and he goes there to see what was going on. Look at verse 11 again. The text says, and when he had looked around at everything. Right? Similar language, I believe, is used in Mark chapter 3 when he looked at the Pharisees who were challenging him. Meaning he looked at every one of them. Right? He, he studied and looked them in the face. He went around and he looked at everything. He inspected the temple. He looked to see if there was genuine worship happening. If there was genuine faith if there was true righteousness among those who professed to know God, if God was being honored, he went to see if proper reverence and worship and affection for God was present. He went to see if his father's house was a house of prayer or a den of thieves. He went to see if true holiness and righteousness were being promoted in the center of all Israel's religious life, the temple. He went and looked and he inspected Again, and he looked to see if there was genuine fruit there. They professed to be the people of God. Is there fruit? Spiritual fruit. And as the rest of our text shows, 
really the next few chapters culminating with the Olivet Discourse, we see that Jesus did not find what he was looking for. And in, in preparation for the events of the next day, Jesus and his disciples went back out to the village of Bethany to rest for the night. And verse 12 tells us that the next day, as Jesus and his disciples are heading back into Jerusalem from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Right? Remember, right? just a, a quick aside, Jesus is truly human. Truly human, as well as truly God. During his time on earth, prior to his glorification, he was subject to everything that we are as human beings. He was like us in every single way, except he was sinless. And he's still like us in every single way, except without sin. He is forever the God-man. But during his time on earth, like us, he got hungry, right? He's truly a man. But being hungry, our, our Lord looks for food to eat, just like we would. And we come to verse 13 now. He's hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So Christ spots a fig tree a little way off, and that tree is covered in leaves, right? Full foliage, covered in leaves, and so naturally it caught Jesus' attention. And the reason why a leafy fig tree would have caught his attention is pretty simple. Here it is. Fig trees in Palestine, I don't know anything about American fig trees, I've not read about them, but apparently fig trees in Palestine tend to shoot out leaves either when or right after a fig tree produces figs either while it's producing figs or right after the figs are present, there are leaves. Now, I want to be clear here. I am not a horticultural expert. I have no experience with fig trees. Probably couldn't spot one out of a lineup, to be completely honest with you. But what I've read, right, from what I've read, this is how things are. So when there are leaves on a fig tree, you can reasonably expect there to be figs on the tree as well. This principle Get this in your mind. It's going to be important. When there are leaves, there ought to be fruit. So even though, as Mark tells us, it was not the season for figs, our Lord was not being unreasonable to expect there, there to be fruit on this tree. He wasn't being unreasonable. Again, where there are leaves, there ought to be fruit. But he didn't find any, did he? He didn't find any fruit. He found, as the text says, nothing but leaves. He was hungry for fruit, but the tree had none. You could say, similarly to verse 11, that's why I think verse 11 is important here, you could say, similarly to verse 11, that the Lord Jesus inspected the tree. He inspected the tree, he approached it and looked it over, looking for even the smallest amount of fruit to eat, but he found nothing, nothing of value to him. Get this, on the surface, from a distance, the tree looked as if it should have produced much fruit. It looked very healthy. It was covered in leaves. Everything looked good and pointed to the fact that it should have fruit. But nevertheless, our Lord Jesus finds nothing there, only leaves. If you'll permit me to personify the tree for a moment, the tree was a liar. It was deceptive. It was a deceiver. Again, it had the leaves that a fruit-bearing tree has, but it had no fruit. And since it had no fruit but only leaves, we read that our Lord spoke to the tree in verse 14. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus curses the fig tree. He speaks death to it. 
No one would ever eat fruit from it again because as Matthew's account in Matthew 21 tells us, the tree would never produce fruit again. And it would never produce fruit again, as we read on in Mark chapter 11, it will never produce fruit again because it's going to wither down to its roots in response to the curse of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, make no mistake, this is a miracle of destruction. It's the only one like it in all the gospel accounts. It's a miracle of destruction. Christ destroys the fig tree with his word. He curses it and he kills it. Why? Because it had no fruit. Because he was looking for fruit and it had none. Because it had all the looks of a tree that should have fruit, but it was deceiving. And a fig tree that bears no figs, what's it worth? It was planted that it might produce fruit. So then if there is no fruit, it is worthless, fit only to wither away and die and eventually be cast into a fire. Now, some people read this account and they get very upset at it, right? Um, they ask th this question, why would Jesus curse a fig tree simply because he's hungry? And it wasn't even the season for figs, right? Mark tells us that. Some, some liberal scholars um, are, are really really blasphemous um, when I read this text in their, in their commentaries and they, they mock the, this account because they don't think it sounds very much like Jesus. Right? Some, some liberal scholars reject this passage altogether and say it's not scripture. Um, so, some believe it actually shows that Jesus had a bad temper and was a sinner because he uses his power to destroy because he was hungry. Right? That's blasphemy. Just real quick, that's blasphemy. Jesus didn't do anything wrong here. Even if I was talking to my sister about this on the phone, even if we can't say anything else about the text, he made the tree. He can do with it what he wants, right? He's the creator of all things, right? If there was nothing else to say, we could say at least that. But know this, Jesus did nothing wrong here, and this was not an episode of Jesus being hangry, right? He's so hungry, I'm gonna kill this tree because I, I was hungry, that's not what's going on here. The cursing of the fig tree was not merely about food and hunger. Now, the hunger was certainly real. The text isn't lying to us there. And it certainly was the setting for what we just read. But there's a lot more to this text than sits on the surface. This whole event is full of symbolism. And I think, and I'm going to try to prove to you, that the immediate context, as well as some symbolism from the Old Testament, shows that there's more to this text than sits on the surface. First, Mark gives us the detail that it was not the season for figs. And I personally think that that's important. Why? That means this tree is unusual. It's not the season for figs. There probably weren't any other fig trees around that had leaves on it, or rather leaves on them. Why? Because it was not the season for figs, right? There are only leaves on the tree once the figs are already there. So if it's not the season for figs, then no other trees would have leaves on them but this one. This tree was stu stood out. And Mark wants us to see that this tree was unusual specifically because it wasn't the season for figs. To me, that tells us that we're to look for a deeper meaning behind all of this. Again, it's an odd tree. And it's an odd event, so there must be more to it. More than that, since this tree would have been alone in having leaves on it, it seems that this is a divine appointment. Right, just go with me here theologically for a moment. God calls us things to grow as he wills, doesn't he? So it seems that this odd tree with leaves but no fruit is meant to serve as some kind of an object lesson. This was all on purpose, according to the will of God. This is, this is not simply about hunger and figs. Second, 
Look at how Mark structures this whole thing. If, you're, if your Bible's open, please look at this with me. Verses 12 through 21. I'm not going to read them, but I want you to see this. And your Bible will probably have headings here. We see in verses 12 through 14, the fig tree. And then in verses 15 through 19, the cleansing of the temple. And then in verses 20 through 21, the conclusion to the cursing of the fig tree. It's, it's, it's a sandwiching, right? You fig tree, temple cleansing, fig tree. What's, what am I getting at? Mark is very clearly connecting what happens to the fig tree with what happened at the temple when Jesus flipped tables and stopped commerce there. He's connecting the two. And as we'll see next week, uh, God willing, what happened in the temple that day was a sign of impending doom and impending destruction upon hypocritical, unbelieving, fruitless Israel. So the fig tree then is meant to be a parable of sorts. It's connected to what Jesus was getting ready to do in the temple. So it's symbolic. It's about much more than mere hunger and food. Third, and this, this might seal the deal for you. Third, we must take into account the fact that fig trees are often symbolic of Israel in the Old Testament. Often symbolic. And Jesus, what, where, where has he just left? The temple. What is the temple? It is the center of life in Israel. And Israel is often represented by fig trees. Now let me show you some text from the Old Testament real quick uh, about Israel and fig trees. You're not going to be able to catch me, so don't, don't worry about it. There's two texts here. In Jeremiah chapter 8, God is pronouncing judgment upon Israel. And he's going through all the ways that they were wicked. And then in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, we read this. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. God says that sinful Israel was like a fig tree with no figs. They were sinful and impenitent. They were like a tree with no fruit. That's Jeremiah 8.13. And in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10a, just the first half of that verse, the Lord is speaking about when he first brought Israel out of Egypt. And we read this. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. And then later, in that same chapter, when pronouncing a curse on Israel, also called Ephraim at some times in the Bible, just real quick, you should know that. Ephraim is another name for Israel. In verse 16a of Hosea 9, God says this, Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. So once again, Israel is compared to a fig tree. And because of their sin, God says they will bear no fruit. And a freebie, this isn't in my notes, but in Joel chapter 1, verse 7, God refers to Israel as my fig tree. My tree. In light of all of this, we must conclude that Jesus' actions here are not merely about hunger and figs. There's something deeper going on. R remember this real quick, and never forget this ever. Jesus is a prophet. Okay, now listen, he's more than a prophet, right? He's God in the flesh. He's more than a prophet, but he's not less than a prophet, right? He is the prophet that Moses in Deuteronomy said that the Israelites were to wait for. There will be a prophet who comes after me. You listen to him or God will cut you off from the nation. Jesus is the prophet. And as you read some of the prophets of the Old Testament, namely Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, you read of them using object lessons in their prophecies, don't you? 
object lessons to drive home a point to their hearers. This fig tree is like a prop, I think. This fig tree is like a prop. It's a prophetic object lesson about what is going to happen to the nation of Israel because of their hypocrisy and false profession of religion. Our Lord is symbolically and prophetically declaring judgment and condemnation upon Israel. And this will be made explicit in the Olivet Discourse in two chapters. Right? And, and you should know this, and this may ruffle some feathers, but I hope to prove it to you in a few months. The whole Olivet Discourse, with the exception of a few verses at the end, is all about, all about the destruction of the temple and Israel as a whole. That's what the Olivet Discourse is about. So it's going to reach its high point the destruction of Israel, and Jesus prophesying it in the Olivet Discourse. And this is really, this whole thing is really just a huge theme uh, from chapters 11 to chapter 13, right? The theme of God's judgment upon Israel for their hypocrisy and rejection of Christ. But you see, Israel was just like the fig tree in our text, just like them, just like it. They were fruitless and worthless to God, but they had all the leaves of religion. They had all the leaves, but they were fruitless. On the surface, hear me, they were incredibly religious. On the surface, you have never met a more religious people in your life. The temple was the centerpiece of national life. They paid taxes to the temple each year. Jerusalem was the great city because it housed the temple there. Everyone was religious. They kept the ceremonial laws, some more than others, but there was a certain amount of ceremonial law-keeping. They observed the dietary laws. They did the rabbinical, pharisaical, ceremonial washings. They kept away from Gentiles for the most part. They kept the Sabbath day and did no work on it. They flocked to the temple for feast days and festivals that God commanded them to observe in the Old Testament. They seemed quite dedicated to their religion. Quite dedicated. But it was all leaves and no fruit. It was all external. From what I can tell in the gospel accounts, feel free to challenge me on this, but from my reading of them, there weren't hardly any true believers in Israel. I'm not saying there were none, but there were not very many at all. And in fact, one of the points that the gospels seem to make to us over and over again is that the Gentiles seemed more likely to believe from the heart than the Jews. The religion of Israel was very public, very ceremonial, very strict, and very shallow. It was all on the surface. They were like a fig tree with, with luscious leaves, but no fruit. Let me, let me, let me mark some of this out for you. For, for the Jews, any substantial concept of God's grace was pretty much non-existent. They had fallen into raw legalism where they were trying to establish their own righteousness through obeying the law, instead of trusting in God to provide true righteousness for them through the Messiah. There was no trusting in God's grace and depending upon him. Instead, they tried to pile up all their works before God as if they could merit salvation and mercy from him. And because of that, because of their legalistic system, they were self-righteous. They believed that they were actually truly righteous in God's sight because of their external actions. And they lowered God's requirements in his law in order to keep up this facade of self-righteousness. They relegated all of God's commandments to mere external actions. That's why Jesus had to clarify on the Sermon on the, on the, Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 and 6, sin is in your heart, not just in what you do. 
Why? Because the Jews of his day had relegated God's law to just external actions. And they ignored the fact that God's law speaks to our hearts, to our affections and our attitudes. The Jews of Christ's day had made God's religion into something merely external and therefore hypocritical. As our Lord said in Mark chapter 7, God's name was all over their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They had turned inward on themselves and no longer cared about bringing the Gentiles to know God. Right? The, the, the whole Jewish religion was predicated on God's promise to Abraham that the world would one day be blessed by Abraham's offspring, who is the Christ. But they hated the Gentiles. Hated them. They, and, and we'll see this next week. Even the Gentiles that they would refer to as God-fearers who wanted to worship the God of Israel, they barely let them in at all. They hated the Gentiles instead of welcoming them. They had come to prefer their own man-made traditions over the word of God. And as, as Christ, Christ exposes the Pharisees throughout the Gospels, when they, had when they had to choose between obedience to God or obedience to their rabbinic traditions, they chose the words of men over the word of God. And there was corruption everywhere. People were mistreated and stolen from. The poor were oppressed. The leaders were corrupt and made deals with Gentiles in order to keep themselves in power. There was no justice in the land. Rather, there was much oppression. There was no fear of God in Israel. There were hardly any righteous men and women who genuinely loved and feared the Lord. And worst of all, they rejected the Messiah, God's own son. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he was challenged and opposed and mocked by the religious leaders. And what do we know? As go the shepherds, so go the sheep. Israel as a whole rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. As John tells us in John chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own received him not. Now, people superficially came to him for miracles, and they would vainly listen to him preach with just a vain curiosity but hardly any took it to heart. Next to nobody believed. And if you say, well, I don't know if I'd say next to nobody believed. How many Christians were there gathered on the day of Pentecost? 120. The entire nation of Israel, 120 people were waiting for the Holy Spirit that Christ had promised. 120 devout disciples of Christ out of the whole nation. They did not believe our Lord was a man despised and rejected by the Jewish people of his day. And for all they pretended to know and pretended to love God, they rejected his son, whom God had sent. As Jesus told them in John 5.23, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. If the Jews really loved God, if they really loved the father, they would have received Christ with faith and believed everything that he said. They would have trusted in him, but they didn't. And in a few days' time, in the narrative of our text, they will be crying out for his crucifixion. They were very religious. But there was no real faith or love for God. And consider their privileges. The Jews had the Old Testament. There was no New Testament yet. The Jews had the word of God. They had prophet after prophet come to them and preach repentance. They had the Levitical priesthood. They had the ceremonial laws that showed them their need for Christ. They had the moral law that shows them their need for Christ. They had the sacrificial system that pointed to Christ. 
They had the promises of God that the Christ would come. They had everything that you could have ever wanted. Privileges that the nations of the world never had. The world was in darkness except for Israel. They alone had light from God's word. And yet they shut their eyes to it. And they maintained an external form of religion with no heart and no faith. They had leaves, but no fruit. And because of this, they were cursed by Christ. Only wrath remained for the nation as a whole. The Lord Jesus is declaring here in this miracle that the old covenant economy was coming to an end. That the nation of Israel would no longer and never again be the corporate people of God. The Old Testament system was coming to a close and only wrath remained for those who remained under that Old Testament system. And instead, God is now going to make a new people, a new Israel, a true Israel made up of true believers with a new and better covenant constituted around Christ, the true Israelite, and faith in him. A new covenant with a people who would bear fruit. But for Israel, the physical nation, only wrath remained. And that wrath came upon them in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, slaughter of about a million Jews in Jerusalem, and the dispersion of the Jews throughout the world. God's wrath was coming for them because they were all leaves and no fruit, because their religion was only external. Now, this text is about Israel and its immediate future in Christ's day. I hope that's clear. It's about Israel and its immediate future in Christ's day. Now, let me say this. I believe that the New Testament teaches that one day a huge amount of ethnic descendants of Abraham, Jews according to the flesh, will join the church through faith in Christ, and it will bring a great revival throughout the world. Paul says in Romans 11, it will be as life from the dead. I believe that there's going to be a great amount of Jews converted someday. God has not forsaken the Jews as an entire people. But this text is about God's wrath upon them as a nation at this time for being only externally religious. That's the primary meaning of this passage. I don't want you to get it wrong, right? We're not anti-Semitic. The Jews are going to come into the church and it's going to be a great blessing. And it's going to happen at some point before Christ returns. But this text is about God's judgment upon them for being only externally religious. It's about them. But that does not mean that this text is silent to us. This text speaks to us. There is application for us here. There are truths that we need to see and apply to ourselves. And here's the truth in a nutshell. Our Lord Jesus demands fruit from his people. God demands true religion and not just a show of it. The king of God's kingdom, our Lord Jesus, is looking for fruit. Just as he looked on the fig tree, just as he looked in the temple, just as he looked at Israel, so also he looks at all who profess his name and he is looking for fruit. And when he finds nothing but an empty profession of faith, when he finds nothing but external religion, he curses it. This is a sobering truth. 
and we need to all carefully consider it. Our Lord takes fruit bearing very seriously. Let me read you some texts now to see you see this. And the texts almost speak for themselves without any commentary. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Our Lord Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer there is no. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You are able to distinguish Christ's people from false professors. How? The true people of God will bear fruit, and it will be good fruit. According to Jesus, it is an absolute fact. A healthy tree must bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear the fruit that Christ is looking for, Christ himself says that it will be thrown into the fire. That is, it will be damned. Again, Jesus speaks of fruit in Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. Just real quick, Christ's ministry was about three and a half years long. For three years now I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, the vine dresser answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. We see here, I want you to see this, the patience and grace of Christ. Three years. Three years he waits in this parable, but eventually the patience will run out. And if there is no fruit, the tree will be cut down. There will be judgment. One more example in John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Everyone who professes faith in Christ but does not bear fruit is taken away by God. And everyone who already does bear fruit is going to be pruned by God so that they can bear more. But what does this taking away mean? We'll be taken away. Verse 6 of John chapter 15, Jesus answers and tells us, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Those who do not bear fruit, but only have an empty profession of faith, will be burned up in fire. The Lord Jesus Christ is deadly serious about finding fruit in the lives of his people. I know this is not a happy thing to hear. This is not a happy thing for me to preach, but it's true. Jesus is exceptionally clear. Where there is no fruit, there will be no salvation. 
I'll clarify some of that later before we end. But know this, on the front end, where there is no fruit, there will be no salvation. And that makes us ask, then what kind of fruit is he looking for? What kind of fruit? My dear friends, he is looking for true religion from the heart. He's looking for true faith that manifests itself in a changed and godly life. And where that does not exist, there is no true faith in Christ. And that's why fruit bearing is such serious business. Our Lord is looking for true faith. Where you have emptied yourself before him and have abandoned any notion that you can earn salvation from him. Where you are clinging to him alone to save you. Where you're looking only to him and his life, death, and resurrection that takes away your sins. True faith, where you've come to the end of yourself and you know that you deserve hell, but you believe his promise to save you by grace alone because he has merited your salvation in your place for you. He's looking for true faith that throws itself upon the mercy of God found only in Christ, a faith that forsakes all others and clings only to the merits of Christ. And flowing from that faith, he is looking for love. The fruits of love. He's looking for genuine love for him. Genuine love for God. After all, how can you not love the God who saved you? He's looking for a heart that beats to please God. A heart, hear me, a heart that desires above all other things to be pleasing in God's sight and to walk in the fear of the Lord all our days. He's looking for a heart that has genuine affection for God. A heart that prizes and esteems God and his smile above all other things in life. A heart that says, let the whole world frown on me. I don't care if God is smiling. A heart that loves God. He's looking for true believers who love and fear the Lord. And from that faith and love, he's looking for the fruit of repentance. Daily repentance. What's that? A hatred for sin. A hatred for sin, a hatred of breaking God's commandments, a sincere hatred of yourself for having offended God. Know this, the Bible never commands you to love yourself. You do that already enough. But a sincere hatred for yourself for having offended God and a sincere from the heart desire to forsake all known sin and follow hard after Christ, seeking to live righteously before him in gratitude. And I want to clarify, this doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly, but he's looking for a heart that desires it. And he's looking for sincerely attempted obedience. He's not looking for perfection. We can't do that. And he doesn't demand it of us. Praise God. We are not saved by our works. Rather, he himself is our righteousness. But he's looking for the fruit of holiness. A changed life that looks to his word for guidance. A life that earnestly desires to obey God and to keep his commandments. He's looking for the fruit of obedience where we structure our lives around doing and abstaining from whatever he calls us to do and keep from. He's looking for an earnest struggle against the flesh that daily wages war on sinful desires. Why? Because we love God. He's looking, hear me, this is important. This speaks to all of us practically. This is an abstract. He's looking for a people who try to right earthly wrongs that they've committed against their neighbors 
who repent toward God and men when they're wrong? Like Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus paid back what he could pay back. Why? Because he was repentant. Because now after coming to Christ, he loved holiness. Christ is looking for men and women who seek to bear fruit in keeping with repentance by apologizing and trying to fix what they've broken with other men. He's looking for a people who love his word and delight in it because it reveals Christ and instructs them. He's looking for a people who love to commune with him in prayer, who long for time to be alone with him in their prayer closets and cast their anxieties upon him, praising him and seeking help in time of need. He's looking for a people who love one another, who lay down their lives for the good of each other, a people who give their goods, times, and talents in order to be a blessing to other followers of Christ, a people who forgive each other, walk in unity and peace as God's people. There, there, there are so many other things that I could say as examples of what genuine fruit looks like. So many examples could be given, but I think you get the point. The Lord Jesus is looking for the fruit of faith that results in godliness. He's looking for true religion, true affection for God, true holiness, true repentance. He's looking for true religion. He's looking at hearts and the actions that flow from them. Brothers and sisters, in light of all the scripture that you've heard today, hear me. External religion is not enough. Going to church is not enough. Having been baptized is not enough. Taking the Lord's Supper is not enough. Being a church member is not enough. Memorizing scripture is not enough. Memorizing the creeds, catechisms, and confessions is not enough. Listening to great reformed preaching Monday through Sunday is not enough. Obeying the regulative principle of worship is not enough. Committing your life to the study of reformed theology is not enough. Without true faith that issues in love for God, love for neighbor, and true holiness, it's all just leaves. It's all just leaves, and it's worthless. I'm preaching to myself. Apart from true faith, all the external things that we do in religion actually just condemn us more. Apart from sincere faith that results in a changed life, all of your reformedness and theology and reverent worship and beautiful hymns, it's just leaves on what's actually a barren tree. Now I need to be clear about something. Going to church and being baptized, taking the supper, memorizing the words, studying theology, it's great. Do that. Do all of it. Do all of it a lot. Except your baptism, do that once. Don't misunderstand me. Please, don't misunderstand me. Those with true faith will do and desire to grow in all the things that I've mentioned just a moment ago, but it will be from the heart from a heart that knows and loves and fears and desires to please God because we are so grateful for what he's done for us in Christ. But those things by themselves as merely external things are worthless. And they just further our condemnation. Just like Israel 
with all of their privileges. Their privileges just increased their condemnation because they weren't true believers. The same can be true of us today. Brothers and sisters, leaves are not enough. There must be true fruit that issues from faith. God does not care. Please hear me. God does not care that we merely profess faith in Christ. He doesn't care. He's not about, he doesn't care about mere externals. He's after true faith. And please hear me. You can fool everyone else, but he sees right through the nonsense. He sees our hearts. He sees our private lives. He sees our most earnest desires. We can fool everyone on earth. You can fool everyone in this church, but you cannot fool him. Without true faith, everything else is useless and an offense to God, and only a curse remains. The curse of eternal damnation. Now, before we go into application, I need to clarify something here. I said I would earlier. I want to be very clear. I am not teaching, nor is this text teaching, nor does any part of Scripture teach that you are justified by your works. I am not saying that you are made right in God's sight, that you are declared righteous and saved by Him because of your fruit. That's not what I'm saying. That's heresy. That's not the gospel. That's not what I'm teaching you this morning. What I'm saying, and and what I believe the Word of God declares on almost every page, is that true faith in Christ results in fruit. We are justified by faith alone, but the faith that saves always, of necessity, results in fruit in our lives. Where there is no fruit, then there has been no faith. But where there is fruit, there has been saving faith. That's the point that I want you to see here. Let me illustrate this for you real quick. A child that is born alive will grow and mature. You can't stop it, can you? I would like to press the pause button on my daughter. But I can't because if she stops growing, that means she died. I don't want that. The baby will grow. It's inevitable. Now listen, growing does not make the baby alive. Rather, the fact that it is alive means that it will grow. Growth is the inevitable result of being alive. So also, in the same way, being alive in Christ means that we will grow to bear fruit. True faith results in fruit bearing in our lives. Now for application, let me say this right off the rip. This text is for each one of us. Do not say in your heart, yep, they need to bear fruit in their lives. That's foolishness. You must bear fruit in your life if you're a believer. So this is a warning and a word to each one of us where there is no fruit, only a future curse remains. But now I want to speak to three groups, three kinds of people before I come to a close. First, to those who know, you know you're a Christian. Talking to you. I would put myself in this group. By the way, it's not arrogant to say, I know that I'm a Christian and I know that there's fruit in my life. 1 John 5 says, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Right? It's not arrogant and it's not a sin to be confident and assured of your salvation. You know you're a Christian. You look at your life and you say, yep, there's fruit here, biblically defined fruit, sincere affection for God, and there's no denying it. Right? There has been and continues to be change and growth and repentance and faith and fruit. And so you have heeded the warning of this text. And you know that you will not be cursed by Christ. Praise God.
But nevertheless, let's keep it real. There probably isn't as much fruit as there should be, is there? I know that's the case for me. I think everyone, if you're going to be honest with yourself, can say that. Oh, no, there's fruit there. I'm a Christian, but there's not as much as there should be. So how do you apply this text personally? Well, first, rejoice. Take your assurance of salvation. Christ holds it out for you. Take it. You are a fruit-bearing tree, and the blessing of God is upon you. Be glad. Be glad. Secondly, pray earnestly to the great vine dresser, to the great gardener, and cry out to him, prune me. Cause me to bear more fruit like you promised you would. What did Jesus say in, in John 15? Every vine that produces fruit, my father will prune so that it bears more. Pray his promise back to him. Cause me to bear more fruit. Help me to bear the marks of a believer more and more so that you're more glorified in my life each day. Help me to bear fruit. I'm your tree. Help me to flourish in righteousness more and more for your glory. Pray. Pray that he would prune you. He will. Pray that he would cause you to bear more fruit and rejoice in your assurance that you actually belong to Christ. Bear fruit in joy. Second, to those who have no fruit, this sermon's cut you to the heart. Your life at root is no different than the world's. You think the same. You talk the same. You live the same. You value the same things. Your affections are on the same things. And you are substantially, really, no different from the world. Maybe you come to church faithfully. You may know the right doctrine. But you're unchanged at the heart. What should you do? Come to Christ. Come to him. Hear me. You are not yet cursed by him. You are not yet cursed by him. The wrath of God abides on you, but you are not yet under the curse. He has not put the ban on you yet. There is still hope for you because he is merciful and patient. Remember the parable. Three years I waited. He's patient. He's been patient with you. And the patience of God, as Paul tells us in Romans 2, is meant to lead you to repentance. And hear me, he's even patient and merciful with falsely professing Christians. But you must come to him. In true faith, you must come to him. Trusting in him alone to save you and change you and cause you to bear fruit. Admit to him that you have been a hypocrite and a false professor. And trust in the Christ who died for hypocrites. Trust in him. I want to be clear, I'm not trying to rob anyone of their assurance of salvation if they actually are entitled to it according to the word of God. But we all must consider and realize that not all who profess faith actually have it. And there may, even in a Reformed church, and in some ways, especially in a Reformed church, there may be those among us who have not actually been converted. I'm not saying that I think that anyone in our membership has not actually been converted. That's not what this is about. I'm saying I don't know your hearts. But if there's no fruit, you must come to Christ. Children, listen to me, kids. Look up here right now. You must come to Christ. Just because your mother and father are Christians does not mean that you are one. You yourself, like everyone else, must come to him in faith and receive him and bear fruit. Or you will be put under a curse. There are no exceptions. 
Everyone, please hear me, everyone. He will cut you down and cast you into the flame if you do not come to him in faith. He will curse you on the last day with the words, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But Christ, I went to church. I never knew you. But I, but I, I taught Sunday school. I didn't know you. And I never did because you never actually came to me. You must come to him. Now is the appointed time, says the apostle. Today is the day of salvation. Come to him. The offer is for you. Take it in faith. But now thirdly, I, sp I speak to another group, a last group. To those of you who aren't so sure. You hear sermons like this and they cut you and you're left saying, I don't know. I don't know. Right? I know we have people like this among us. I, I have struggled with the assurance of salvation for a long time. Am I actually one of Christ's people? I struggled with that for years. Right? You, you look at your life and you think there might be a little fruit, but you're not sure. Your life isn't just like the world's. Right? There is a difference. You, you do have some affection for God, but maybe, maybe you fear that it's only superficial. Maybe you fear that it's only superficial. What do you do? Look to Christ. That's what you do. Look to him in faith. And believe his promise to save all who come to him. All that the, all that the Father draws will come to me. And all who come to me I will in no wise cast out. Come to him. Those who are looking to Christ in faith surely belong to him. He promises Faith is a fruit. It is, it is the fruit that leads to all other fruit. Trust in him. Know this, at root, please hear me. Let's dip from the Lutheran well here for a minute. Jesus himself is our assurance. He has died. He has risen. And by faith, you have been united to him. You can know that you're saved. Look to him in faith. Always be looking to Christ. Listen, please hear me. Keep this in mind. You must remember this. Christ himself at root is your assurance that you belong to him. Why do I say that? Because your life will wax and wane in fruitfulness. I'm not making excuses for you. You need to repent when your life is less fruitful than it should be. But this does happen to us. Sometimes your life is more fruitful than at other times. Your life may wax and wane in this. And so you must always look to Christ first and foremost. He is your salvation. He is your life. He is your peace with God. But also pray. Plead with him to cause you to bear fruit. Inspect your life and see, are there besetting sins that you need to repent of and seek godly counsel over? Is that what's causing fruitlessness? Is you're harboring some sin and you need help? Are you caught in something and you need help? Pray. Seek counsel. And dive into the word to hear from him every day. What does Jesus tell us in John 15? Abide in me so that you bear fruit. Trust in me. Keep hearing from me. Keep, keep fellowship with me in prayer and worship and reading the word. Abide in me so that I cause you to bear fruit. You're not so sure? Continue to trust in him. Continue to abide in him. And in doing so, you will bear fruit. And know this, that your concern, coupled with looking to Christ, is a great ground to believe that you belong in him. You belong to him, rather. And that your faith is not just leaves. 
Why do I say that? Because looking to him in faith and being concerned about fruit bearing are signs of life. Signs of life. Faith does not belong to those dead in sin. And concern about bearing fruit is foreign to the unregenerate. Brothers and sisters, leaves alone end in a curse. And so may God grant to each one of us that we would come to Christ in faith. And having come to him, that we would bear much fruit for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this this heavy text that, that, that cuts us to the heart in many ways and it challenges us and asks us, you know, are we bearing fruit? Lord, you know what groups of these people are among us that I addressed in my application and so I pray that you, by your spirit, would set the word home to them in whatever way it needs to be applied that if there are unbelievers, you would draw them to Christ, that if there are believers who are bearing fruit, that they would bear more, and if there are believers who have borne little fruit, that you would cause them to bear more and more and help us all to always look to Christ. He is our peace with you. And the more we look to him, the more we hear from him, the more we commune with him, the more we trust in him, the more fruit we will bear. It is an inevitability. Help us to do that. Help us to abide in Christ that we might bear more fruit for your glory. We pray it in his name. Amen.